Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Morning, church. Um, So today's reading is from 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 to 23, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. So, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it is holy and true, um, speaks to us of who you are um, through all times, through all generations, in all places, Father. And we thank you that we can gather together this morning um, to grow closer to you, to learn more about you. And we just pray for your servant Josh as he comes to speak this word to us. We pray that you would use him powerfully, use him as your mouthpiece to speak your truth into our hearts, into our lives. And we pray, Father, soften our hearts in preparation for what we're about to hear. We pray, Holy Spirit, be amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One side a husband, you know the sort of chap. I married by the dancer, now we came on with the chaps. Are you dancing? I think you're a bleeding cracker. He said my eyes were deep blue pools, my skin was soft as snow. Lovely. He told me I was sexier than Marilyn Monroe. And we went dancing. We went dancing. Then, of course, I found that I was six weeks overdue. What? We got married at the registry, and then we had a do. Bring on that baby! We had Kelly seven sandwiches and how the ale did flow. Jeez. They said the bride was lovelier than Madeline Monroe. And we went dancing. We went dancing. Then 
The baby came along, we called him Dad and Wayne. And three months and I found that I was in the club again. I'm married a blatant rabbit. Though I still fancied dancing, the husband wouldn't go. Get lost. With a wife, he said, was twice the size of Madeline Monroe. No more dancing. No more dancing. By the time that I was 25, I looked like 42 with seven hungry mouths to feed and one more nearly due. My husband, he walked out on me a month or two ago. Shut up. For a girl, they say, who looks a bit like Madeline Monroe. And they go dancing. They go dancing. They go dancing. Does anyone know what musical that's from? Blood Brothers, well done. So that's a, a West End musical, um, which is about a pregnant mother who gives birth to twins. She can't afford to keep them both, so she gives one up for adoption to a wealthy family and keeps the other herself. And the story is very much about um, how those two boys grow up in different circumstances and the impact it has on its life. And the linchpin of that story is Mrs. Johnston. She's the person who we heard singing there. And for most of the story, she's wearing an apron because she's a browbeaten single mother working hard either at home or as a housekeeper for someone else. But that song, which is the opening one, gives you a little introduction to her life because she wasn't always the person wearing the apron. Once she was a beautiful teenage girl who went out dancing, who fell in love, who had a family, who had dreams for the future, but... As you see in that clip, um, the reality was very different to that. Um, she lost her independence, she lost the looks, she lost the figure, she lost the confidence, she lost the husband, and as the story tells you, she went, went on to lose some of her children. And it's a picture, isn't it, of the vitality and optimism of youth with the reality that things don't turn out as we expect, life isn't fair, and the people we love let us down. Well, today we're focusing on someone who, though, you know, she lived in a very different place to 1970s Liverpool, but nonetheless, she could relate to the idea of someone who had dreams as a youth that went awry as she grew up. And many of us have probably only heard of Michelle, or Michal is the correct way that Elle said, but I'm going to say Michelle because I know someone, and that's how they pronounce their name, and I'll get into the wrong habit. Um, but most of us know her from the reading today as a bitter old cynic, but that wasn't who she always was. So today I want us to do a little bit of a character study about her and see what lessons her life teaches us. The sermon is brought to you by the letter B. We're going to look at her uh, biography, her blindness, her bitterness, and her bridegroom. So first of all, let's look at Michelle's biography. Now, Michelle was King Saul's youngest daughter, and she first appears of note in 1 Samuel 18. Saul had recently appointed David as a general in his army, but Saul was an insecure leader. 
And when someone is insecure, they become vicious if they see a threat to their kingship. And that's how Saul perceived David, even though he was very loyal. Saul's cunning plan was to offer the hand of his eldest daughter, Mirab, in marriage. Uh, and David was told, if you stay in my army, you can marry her. So he does that. Saul puts him in a place of danger, but he doesn't die. So Mirab gets married to someone else. Then Michal appears. And in 1 Samuel 18, in verse 20 and 28, we're told that she loved David. It's there twice, and commentators will tell you it's the only place in the Bible where a woman is said to love a man in that manner. And Saul was delighted that his, infant, that his young daughter had fallen in love because it was an opportunity for him to trap David and to harm him. So he said, David, you can marry my daughter if you bring me the foreskins of 100 Philistines. And it is as grim as you're thinking. You know, that, that's what he's asking for. And that was a suicide mission. You know, it's provoking their proverbial bear, their Philistine enemy, and you have to go into the enemy lands, get close enough to kill a hundred, and get close enough to, you know, cut off the prize, as it were. And it's kind of, you know, there's no way it would succeed. It's like the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, where Meryl Streep sends Anne Hathaway out to get the unpublished Harry Potter book for her kids to read on the train. There's just no way that's going to happen. But, you know, David had a plan for David. God had a plan for David, and it wasn't David's time. So... Not only did David succeed, but he came back with 200 foreskins, so the wedding was on. And as grim as that was, she might have preferred an engagement ring, to be honest with you, but I'm sure that as a teenage love-struck girl, that her would-be husband would get into such danger to secure her hand in marriage, I'm sure that would have you know, touched her. And um, sadly, even at that point, David cared more about becoming the king's son-in-law than becoming a, a husband. The next chapter, Saul's getting increasingly erratic, and he sends assassins to David's marital home in Bethlehem, where he lives with Michelle. Michelle hears of this. She helps David escape out of the back window. That's the, the, the picture on the left there. And she then puts a statue in Michelle's bed with some goat's hair, so it looks like David's sleeping, and that buys him more time. Eventually, Saul finds out. He's like, why did you do this? She said, well, David threatened to kill me if I didn't. Now, Michelle lied, and she shouldn't have done that, but I can understand why she did. This was the father who wanted to use her affections to kill his enemy, would have happily killed him outside the marital home, and may have turned on her if she'd have told him the truth. And I kind of see this like the midwives who saved the Hebrew baby boys, or Rahab the uh, harlot who kept the spies of the Lord safe um, when she lied and said they weren't on her roof when they were. Michelle did the right thing, but she did it in the wrong way. At some point to the fact that it was a statue in the bed, you know, maybe it was an idol, well, you know, there's nothing to say David worshipped it, but it, it was in David's house, so, and it's a life-size thing, David would have known about it as well as she would have done. So David then goes and lives several years of adventure, where he has close scrapes with Saul, who's trying to get him. He becomes a mercenary for the Philistines, but he never once makes an effort to get in touch with Michelle, though he does with her brother Jonathan. He also takes two wives of his own at that period, and you know, just as an aside here, um, the Bible presents reality in its gory detail. It doesn't condone marrying more than one person. It actually shows you how messy that gets, and that's why Christ reaffirmed one woman, one man marriage as the, the, the bedrock of that institution. But David took two other women, and at one point they were kidnapped. He sent his army to bring them back to him, um, but he never sent his army to bring Michelle safely to him. He seemingly didn't care about her. 
So during all this time, Saul is married off to someone else, probably a friend of her father's for another political alliance. Now you fast forward a few years, and King Saul, Jonathan, and two of his other sons die in battle. That's the second picture behind me. And then David becomes king of Judah, and as part of some political bargaining, he becomes the king of all Israel. Um, And as he puts his demands forward to Saul loyalists in uh, 2 Samuel 3, he said that he wants his wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. It's getting a lot of focus, isn't it, at this point, really? But, um, you know, the fact that David doesn't even get the number right and the context of it, it seems he cared more about the political power seeing her would get. And as she's brought to him, we see her jilted second husband, Paltiel, crying behind as she's being trailed off, and Michelle is just cold to all the emotion. And that takes us up to the reading today, which is happening when David is a king and the Philistines are no longer a threat. Now, Michelle was a king's daughter, so of course she had privileges that the common people didn't have, but as I hope you've seen, she certainly wasn't a Disney princess whose problems ended when she got married. So next I'm going to look at what I'll call Michelle's blindness. Now, this chapter is a very happy day for the nation of Israel. The ark, which symbolized God's presence with his people, is being brought from the house of one man where its blessing has overflowed to get into the heart of the new capital city of Jerusalem so that everyone might enjoy something of the presence of God. Uh, The first bit of the passage we didn't read shows how their first attempt went terribly because they didn't realize that in order to welcome God's holy presence, you have to treat God as holy. And they they didn't do that, and it was a disaster. But they made some adjustments and... uh, the passage we kind of just read is what happened. And it was a joyful day, wasn't it? Verse 12, David went up to bring the ark up with rejoicing. Uh, Verse 15, all Israel is there with shouts and trumpet. There's a carnival, celebratory atmosphere. But the worship of God is central, and you see that in sacrifices. And uh, even at the end of that, when everyone goes home, David sends them back with a food hamper so that they might take this celebration home into their individual households and enjoy the presence of God um, brought to them uh, in the ark. And everyone's celebrating, aren't they? Apart from Michelle in verse um, 16. She's looking out of a window and it says she despised him in her heart. That teenager who swooned over him is now bitter with contempt. And when you look back at her life, you can understand why she might feel like that, as I've sort of gone into detail. And you can see why she might not wanted to have celebrated David. But that heartache and the bitterness that it gave rise to caused her to be blind at what was going on in front of her very eyes. She was blind to the fact it wasn't just David celebrating, it was the whole nation. She was blind to the fact that there's at least the possibility for some kind of reconciliation with David as he brings food home for his household, which was a big number, but after him as his first wife, she would have been a senior figure within that. But her harsh words of contempt for David are indicated in verse 23, you know, they were never intimate again, which is why she didn't have any children. But most tragically for her, she was blind to the fact that the reason why they were celebrating was because God was at work and his holy presence was coming to the center of the nation. And that little localized thing in the house of Obed-Edom could overflow in the nation for those who would receive it. And particularly when you contrast this to the first bit of the passage where David's anger at the plan not happening 
is followed sometime later by joy in this. It shows what he did with his anger. Whereas Michelle held on to hers and it blinded her to what God was doing. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147 says, He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And you know, these things are given in the context of seeking God and taking your pain to him. And there's another woman who was a contemporary of Michelle's great-grandmother called Hannah. Like Michelle, she wasn't a husband's only wife, and she had an unhappy experience, because though her husband loved her, he didn't understand her. Um, the other wife mocked her and was nasty to her, and Hannah really wanted children, and she couldn't have them. But she didn't hold on to her bitterness. 1 Sam 1 verse 10 says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She took her bitterness to God. And God answered her prayer and all the other references to her. She's a, a joyful, happy, content person. But Michelle never sought God's help. And her bitterness would ultimately define her. And as we move to my next point, I, I guess all I'll say about is Michelle. She made her choice. I don't want to moralize too much about what she should or shouldn't have done. Instead, I want to say, well, what, what should we do when we face some of the challenges that she faced because this has a lot to tell us about our response to bitterness. So we'll look at that now. First of all, bitterness is natural. Michelle wasn't treated well, and that's why she responded the way she did. You know, a few years ago, there was a global movement symbolized by a hashtag, MeToo. And it was about abuses of power in a workplace, typically senior executives taking advantage of young female employees um, for their own ends. And, probably know the most famous examples were the Hollywood executives who would promise um, parts in their films to young starlets in exchange for favors in the bedroom. Well, you know, David and Saul were not Harvey Weinstein. I don't need to misunderstand what I'm saying, but Michelle could understand the idea of a woman being used by powerful men for their own purposes without regard for her own experience. Her father had done that with her emotion, and David had secured her hand for his own power and got reunited, it looks like, for the same reason. So I understand why she was angry. And bitterness and anger is a natural response to injustice. And many people, maybe people here today, are bitter because you've been mistreated by someone you trusted, or you've been betrayed by someone you love, and you may still have emotional, even physical scars as a result of that. And I just want to say to you, you know, that pain, God hates injustice as well. And angerness is the right reaction to sin. So I understand why Michelle was angry. And that feeling of hostility toward the person who caused it you is totally understandable and natural. But next, Michelle's life tells us that bitterness is ugly. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if the cause of bitterness is ugly, then the effect of bitterness is going to be ugly. And you see that in Michelle, how her contempt for David overspills into everything. In verse 16, there's anger as she despised him in her heart. You know, this, is, this is deep-rooted. And as you get into verse 20, there's a sarcasm. She's distrusting. She's undermining. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. She's undermining him in front of people because she wants to show disrespect. She's slanderous against him. She says, you go around half-naked. He wasn't half-naked. He was wearing an ephod. You know, that lie is one that people still believe today. And they talk about David dancing naked in God's presence. He wasn't naked, he wasn't half naked. He had an ephod on, but she was slandering him. And she was also malicious towards others because her hatred of him overflowed into the 
full view of the slave girls of his servants like any vulgar fellow would. That bitterness is transferring and infecting her view of other people. And ultimately, as the cause of David's celebration in this case was God at work, she was slandering God as well and feeling bitter towards him. And her grisly demeanor shows us what can happen to any of us if we allow bitterness to take hold of us. It defiles and infects everything we do, even if it's a perfectly natural reaction. And next, I want to talk about bitterness is harmful. I know we've got a few doctors in here, but you don't need to be a doctor to know that holding a grudge against someone or bitterness isn't good for your physical health, it's not good for your mental health, and this says it's not good for our spiritual health. Because we've seen that it blinded Michelle to God being at work, the God who could have healed her heart and helped her. And the same can happen today. And maybe one of you here today isn't a Christian, and the reason why is that you are angry with God for something that happened to you or someone who you love. And you're angry that a so-called God of love could allow that to happen without intervening. Well, I don't want to give you an like, off-the-shelf answer to what's obviously a deeply personal situation because you know, we don't have all the answers. But we would welcome the opportunity to talk with you either to our prayer team after the service or Andy or the, the two elders, Stephen, uh, sorry, me or the two elders, Andy and Stephen. And what I would say to you, though, is that God is not responsible for suffering. God is not responsible for suffering ultimately. The perpetrators of suffering are the human race as a whole. And I'm not saying that someone does something bad and that's why they suffer. I'm not saying that at all. That, that isn't the case. But the Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God to know him, to enjoy loving relationship with him and other human beings, to enjoy this beautiful creation that he made. But their response was the same thing that you and I do. We're happy to take the good things, but treat him with utter contempt and cut him out of the picture and tell him we want nothing to do with him. We treat God in the way that Saul and David, at least in this passage, has treated Michelle. And the consequence of sinning against the holy God, who is nothing but love and benevolence toward us, has cosmic consequences. Because God is just and he does have to punish evil. Because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be good. Because if you love what is good, you have to hate what is evil. And to rebel against him is an evil thing. One of the first consequences of that is alienation with God. Because we tell God what to do, God takes us at our word and we're alienated from him. We don't enjoy the close relationship with him that we were meant to do when we were first created. And though he's kind and lets us enjoy the world, there'll come a time when we die, when we will face full alienation from him and our sins will be punished in a place called hell. But the second consequence is that our sin defiles us. It defiles our relationship. It's why people fall out. It defiles our consciences. And you don't need me to tell you that you've done things in your life that you're ashamed of and that you wish you hadn't have done and you wish you'd have the strength not to do them. That's the impact of sin defiling us from the very inner part of ourselves. That even though we don't want to do sin, often we, 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 we do. But you know, God isn't like Michelle. God hates injustice, but God loves us. And God pursues us because he wants us to be forgiven and reconciled to him. And he wants to cleanse us from the defiling effects of sin in our life. And he does that in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man, as we were saying with the creed earlier before. He comes into our world. He lives the perfect life that none of us could live. 
And he willingly dies the death on the cross in our place as our substitute to receive the full force of God's anger at human evil, though he didn't deserve it, we did. And he died. And he rose from the dead three days later, showing that death and the consequences of sin no longer have the final word. And he says that those who um, trust in him and put our faith in him can enjoy the benefits of the cross. And that benefit is a relationship with God restored that goes into eternity. But there's also a, a cleansing effect that God helps us to become more and more like Jesus by his Holy Spirit. So we have power to say no to things that previously we didn't. So that God can undo the defiling effects of sins we have committed. But also, friends, Jesus is so powerful that he can clean you from the shame that other people's sins might have put onto you by wrong actions that they have done to you. That is Jesus, and that's why he went to the cross. And the way you receive that, friends, is to acknowledge your wrongdoing before him, acknowledge that you've been shaking your fist at him, and instead put your trust in Jesus and say that with his help you want to follow him and trust in his death and his resurrection alone. That is what happens in order to save. I'm just going to pray now. Lord, I pray that... um, If there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, um, I pray that you will give them a picture of who you are, that you will save them, and they might take a step of walking from uh, animosity towards you to um, a loving relationship with you. And I pray if there's any bitterness at the root of that, Lord, please soften their hearts, fulfill your word to give them a new heart and put your spirit in them, and may they know the joy of relationship with you. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, bitterness isn't the... um, the preserve of people who aren't Christian, right? Um, because if you're under already a Christian, bitterness affects us all. And it can be just as dangerous to a Christian. In fact, it can be more harmful in some ways because the nature of being a Christian is that we know we are wrongdoers. We know God has forgiven us. So if we're unwilling to forgive others who have wronged us, then we're living a lie and we're denying the gospel that God has saved us with. And if you, Christian, allow bitterness to take hold in your heart, it will consume you like it did Michelle, and it will stifle you of your joy and fellowship with God. You know, prayer is the way we enjoy fellowship with God, where we commune with God in the name of Jesus. And it's only possible because of the cross and the resurrection. But when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, forgiveness is at the heart of that. He says, forgive us our debts or sins, as we also have sinned against our debtors. But it's followed by a postscript. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now this verse isn't about God choosing to unsave people. Remember, it's in the context of prayer. It's about communing with God. But God, if you're unwilling to forgive people, particularly other believers, don't be surprised if God doesn't want to hear or answer your prayers. God is gracious and he often does answer prayers. In fact, he always answers prayers because we're always ultimately undeserving. But don't be surprised if you're allowing bitterness to take hold if you know less of God's presence and closeness in your walk with him because you're showing as much contempt for the gospel as Michelle was, um, as she saw David and as they showed for her. Now that is sobering, isn't it? That the way we treat one another can impact our intimacy with God. It is sobering. But what should encourage us is that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows we're going to make mistakes. He knows we're going to fall out, right? He puts it in the Lord's Prayer so we will never forget it. He assumes that broken people who come to the Savior for cleansing and healing will need, will fall out with one another. So he says the way you deal with it is to forgive one another. 
And that should encourage us that he knows us well and he provides a way. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul spells out the corrosive effect of bitterness in more detail. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That is, don't act in a way that makes the Holy Spirit who comes to live in Christians unwelcome to work in you. How do we avoid grieving him? The following verse. Get rid of all bitterness. It's the first thing he mentions, bitterness. Rage, anger, outcry, slander, every form of malice. Instead, be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Clinging to bitterness is like sticking two fingers up at the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't be surprised if we lose a sense of his presence and like Michelle, if we're harboring bitterness, can't see what everyone else can see when God is at work. Bitterness is that dangerous, Christian. And Hebrews 12 goes further. It talks about a bitter root of bitterness as um, it's on a, holiness is needed to see God and he links that to, to bitterness. He says, it's like a root unchecked that if it isn't dealt with, it will grow and grow. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You know, the metaphor of the root is illustrated in Michelle's life. She didn't go to bed loving David one day, then the alarm clock went off the following morning and she didn't like him. Clearly, we've seen her life story. You can understand um, how that journey went on. And that's bitterness. You can start off with a little annoyance, a little anger, a little root. But if you don't nip it out, it grows and grows and grows and it consumes you as it consumes Michelle until that little root is like the tree on the picture behind me. All these intertwangled roots in this huge oak that is immovable in your soul, immovable in your heart. And its fruit is ugly, as we've seen. So Christian, if you're holding on to a grudge today, I'm not trying to condone the wrong that was done to you. As I've said, it's, it's wrong. But what I'm saying is if you're holding bitterness towards someone else, you need to let it go. You need to nip that root in the bud because if you don't, it will dominate you in the way it dominated Michelle. It will defile you and cause you to treat other people as she viewed on the, uh, the servant girls. It'll deny the gospel so that all your friends will look at you and they will not see the full power of Jesus because you're not living in line with the gospel. It will distance you from God and it will deprive you of the joy and fellowship with him that he wants to give you, that he went to the cross for but by your own actions, you're making a step saying you don't want him in your life. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you, any of you, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Whatever it is, forgive. I'll just give you an ABC of how to forgive. A, admit it. Admit that you're holding a grudge. Don't try and write it off or forget about it. It will always come back when there's a pressure if you don't confront it. Admit it. Don't pretend otherwise. B, bring it to God. Tell God how you feel about it. Tell God why you find it hard to forgive. Tell God why you can't forgive without his help. And tell God you want to repent of that wrong thinking and act like Jesus and ask his Holy Spirit to help you in doing that. And C, choose to forgive. Because we often think of forgiveness as a heart reaction. It most of the time starts off as a head reaction where we choose to do an action that our heart hasn't caught up with yet. Because forgiveness means don't treat someone as their sins deserve. In fact, treat them as if they have been perfectly good, not that they've harmed you. 
So you need to make a choice that you're not going to treat them the way their sins deserve. You're not going to speak of them as the way you view their sin. You're going to pray blessing over them. You're going to speak good things over them. You're going to seek their good. It doesn't mean that wrongdoing doesn't have to be punished by the relevant authorities or investigated, but it means as far as your heart goes, you're going to choose to forgive. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 6. Love your enemies in your actions. Do good to those who hate you. In your words, bless those who curse you with their words and pray for those who mistreat you. And of course, if you have done anything wrong to a person, um, then it's not just one way. You should take the steps to seek reconciliation with them and, and, and forgiveness. And there's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, if you're aware that someone holds, sin, holds your sin against you, then you need to go and seek to reconcile that before you, um, you come to worship. It's that important. We need to forgive. And my experience is, when I've had to, you know, the thing of a couple of examples in my life where I've really had to, you know, forgive people when I haven't wanted to do so, is that it takes a while before my heart catches up to what my head knows is right. And that's a picture of living by faith. It's doing what God's word tells us to do, even though we don't feel like doing it in the moment. But I can also testify too that God has been with me throughout that. And if the Holy Spirit is grieved when we're resisting bitterness, wow, he is delighting when we're trying to fight it and forgive because it's the most Christ-like thing you could do. He is with you. He is fueling your efforts. And he is going to glorify Christ in you as you seek to follow his example. Amen. And of course, I've got to give the caveat, if you're in a dangerous or harmful situation where reconciliation would be unfair <laughs> or unwise, get the help you need. If you need to get out of that situation, get out of it. But in here, you can still forgive that person. You can still pray for their blessing. And you cannot allow bitterness against them to defile you. There's the famous Nelson Mandela quote, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it blames the person who harmed you. It doesn't. It harms you. So I just say to you, please forgive. And if you're ever tempted to think you can't, remember Jesus was wronged far more than any of us, but he underwent that because of his love for us. Because he didn't want our sin to define our eternal destiny, and he doesn't want us to live with the corrosive effects of sin when he saved us and brought him to himself. And he says, Father, forgive. And in your heart, he can help you say, forgive those who have wronged you. Amen. So don't hold on to bitterness. Forgive, forgive, forgive. And finally, I want to just say a few words about David, Michelle's bridegroom. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea about my view of David. David is a great man. And if we were looking at other passages, you would see something of his greatness. And even in the passage we saw, arguably this is David at his greatest as he's leading the people in the worship of God. He's no longer purely a military or political leader. He's a, a proto-worship leader setting the tone for that nation's approach to God. And verse 21, when he's talking to Michelle, makes clear that God appointed David as king. And that was true from David's young life. He knew that and God had a plan to use David. But it, it leaves you with the question, why did you choose him? Some of the harm that Michelle experienced as a result of decisions he made and his father before him, who was the king you chose before David, God. Why did you choose him? Well, I can't really give you a full explanation other than that God does all things well and he knew what he was doing. But what I can tell you is that Michelle's life story teaches us that even the best of men and women, even the man after God's own heart, is a fallen human being with serious character flaws. There's multiple people in the Bible who fit that description. There are multiple people in church history who fit that description. 
And there are people in our lives who are maybe even within the church or not within the church or who will join the church in future that that is true of as well. All our heroes have clay feet. That's what that picture there is. That's a saying that comes out of the book of Daniel where there's a statue with the, the gold head, the silver torso, the bronze thighs and the uh, iron, the kind of the clay, iron, the clay feet with bits of iron in. It's a picture of fragility that when that feet were shattered, the whole thing came crumbling down. And it's a saying, isn't it, about how our leaders, no matter how impressive or much awe we hold them in, they have character flaws that at any point could lead to their destruction. And the truth is, we all have feet of clay. That is why we need a savior. So if someone who you've put a lot of faith in in your Christian life lets you down, first of all, don't let it cause a crisis of faith for you because your faith was never in her or him. It was in Jesus who saved that broken person as they have saved you. So don't let, don't let clay feet cause you to go away from Jesus. And, and if that is your experience, I would gently encourage you to look again at Jesus because he's not the one who's let you down and he never will let you down. Amen. Secondly, if you're confronted with this kind of situation where someone's character flaws bring something down, don't gloat over them. Have a bit of humility because there but for the grace of God go you and go I because we all have clay feet and what we need to be concerned with is how we're going to follow Jesus, how we're going to live faithfully for him, how we're going to stay close to him so he helps us and we know him when we're going through difficult times. We're going to pray that he helps us resist temptation and we're going to pray that when we do make mistakes that we're going to have the grace to admit we were wrong, repent quickly and keep following him. And sometimes we need to pray that other people will forgive us as well. Because if David can make a mistake like that, then you and I certainly can. But above all, David's failings and our failings magnify how great Jesus is. He doesn't have clay feet. He doesn't have dirty secrets doing the rounds on Twitter or in hushed voices among powerful people to keep them hidden. Jesus was perfectly righteous and didn't deserve any consequence of punishment for sin but he willingly accepted it so that guilty women and men like you and me, defiled by our sin, alienated from God, can be restored to relationship with him. And over time, God can work out the effects of sin in us to cleanse us and make us more and more like him. And the fact Jesus will never change because Jesus is righteous means we know we are accepted and we're not gonna be plucked from his hand. And Jesus chooses to use people with clay feet despite our weaknesses. He does with David, he does with people that we know and he, he, he will do with us as well. And if you want God to use you in your brokenness, as I assume those of you who are Christians do, you know the most glorious thing that God in Christ did? It was humbling himself into our world, being raised on that cross, dying for our sin so that we might be forgiven. The most glorious thing Jesus did wasn't creating the world or recreating it. It was dying in our place so that we could be forgiven. So if you want God to show something of his glory in you, then forgive. Admit it that you're holding a grudge. Bring it to God honestly and openly and choose to forgive and seek reconciliation if at all possible with the person on the other side of that grudge. As I ask the band to come back up now, as we close, Michelle had a terrible experience, and I understand why she held on to bitterness. And on the other hand, David did bad things here, and he did other bad things in future. 
One of them knew what it was like to have close fellowship with God. One of them could dance in the presence of God because they took their anger and their sin and placed it in God. Michelle didn't, and her bitterness defined and defiled her. My plea to you is don't let the same happen in your heart. Come to Jesus, bring him your pain, bring him your brokenness, and above all, bring him your sinfulness. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he loves you and wants to forgive you and show his power in you as you forgive others. Amen. Our Father God, we thank you for the glory of your cross. We thank you that our God would humble himself in order that we might be forgiven of our sin, reconciled into relationship with you, adopted into your family, and used as trophies of your grace to show that the God of heaven works through people with clay feet. And I ask, Lord, that as we come to worship you now, that you might be at work in people's hearts and minds to apply what your word has said today so that we might follow you and honor you in everything that we do. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.